Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show. Bet365 sponsors the Phil Hayes Show and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sports. New season is now underway and Bet365 are offering a huge range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. And with over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, place the score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And Bet365's Match Live feature means that if you can't watch the games live, you can follow every moment via live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello. From The Athletic, it's Phil Hay. Hola. And The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Leeds United are getting busy. And Phil, let's have a roundup of the transfers right now. Then, I want to start from this point? You spoke previously about Leeds plundering the best of the championship this summer, and it feels like we've seen a bit of a sea change in that regard. What what's changed? I think one of the things that changed has been a the availability of Rodrigo at Valencia, and the fact that on a, a list that also included players like Brentford's Ollie Watkins, he suddenly became very prominent and and very attainable, and and went from. You know, a Spain number nine who I think Leeds assumed might be very difficult to sign and, and might have higher ambitions in terms of the clubs he wanted to play for, you know, aside in the Champions League or, or the Europa League, to suddenly somebody who was interested in coming to play for them, coming to play for Bielsa and who financially would, would fit into their budget and into their wage structure. And so that one was done. And, and with respect to, to Robin Cork at, at Freiburg, again, the, the kind of priority target um, at the start of the window was Ben White at Brighton. And, and there is no question at all that had the had one of the three bids that, that went in to Brighton for White been successful or had Brighton been willing to, to deal with him and, and to properly discuss a fee and, and essentially to make that move happen, then he would have come and, and that would have been um, the centre-back sign. That would have been filling the gap in defence that, that he left um, after the, the end of his loan. And But because that one wasn't going to materialise and because Leeds could see the woods for the trees and, and knew that they were getting dragged into negotiations that were essentially going nowhere, they went for Cock instead. And, and Cock, it has to be said, is, is somebody that altered been looking at for a long time now, months um, and, and beyond, uh, with a view to a window like this where they needed a centre-back and they needed somebody of high calibre. So I think essentially the pedigree of player that they're looking for is, is still as it was before the window opened. They they were very keen on Watkins at Brentford. They did look closely at him. I think they knew he was a player that Bielsa rated and who Bielsa thought would fit into his team. And, and he was somebody who they felt that Financially, they could they could sign within the parameters that they had for this window. I just think when push came to shove and they realised that Rodrigo was available for twenty seven million plus add-ons, and the likelihood was that Watkins was going to cost roughly the same fee, there was no contest, and and they knew that that in Rodrigo they were getting a, an elite forward and a, and a you know a real real marquee signing. How are the wages likely to compare between the two? Rodrigo will comfortably be um, highest earner at the club. That goes without saying. Um, it was was always going to be the case. But I don't think Watkins will, if he does move, and I expect that he will do, I think he will end up at a Premier League club in this window. I don't think he'll be on a, a small salary at all. I've, I've seen reports listing his, his demands at about £70,000 a week. And even if it doesn't stretch to that amount, certainly from, from what I know about what was being discussed when Aston Villa were looking closely at, at Calvin Phillips 12 months ago, 
the wage hikes when you get into the Premier League are huge and the, the capacity of clubs at that level to carry big wages is, is much greater and they have bigger budgets, they have much greater income as we all know from, from the Premier League funds. Uh, so again, I, I would be pretty certain that Rodrigo will, will end up costing Leeds more on a weekly basis than Ollie Watkins will but I think it would be easy to look at Watkins as a, a young championship player and, and to assume that he would be very, very affordable but when you start to listen to and, and look at the figures involved you realise that it, it was going to be a shell out either way, it was going to be a, a significant investment and I think that's the slight difference with, with Robin Cock is that with Ben White Leeds were very much prepared to to find themselves paying in the region of 25 to 30 million pounds for him and, and they knew they would have to give him a, a hefty pay rise with Cork you, you're talking 30 million pounds up front significantly less and I think on the basis that you've got a Germany international coming in who seems to have a pretty similar skill set to White it doesn't feel like bad business and I just wonder whether in, in time it might feel as if actually that worked out for the best in the end. It's been really interesting to chart the sort of shift in positions of Leeds fans um, on Twitter, which, you know, it's, it's a nightmare at the best of times is Twitter. And uh, I'm, I'm not on Facebook, but I presume it's similar. It's worse, much worse. <laughs> but to see how fans have kind of gone, oh, well, okay, Ben White signed a new contract down at Brighton and we were looking at heading towards 30 million for him. But actually you wait up against Robin Cock and then you look at the signing of Rodrigo. We've signed two current internationals for the sort of money we've laid out. Was it, you know, ballpark 40 million or something along those lines. And actually, you know, Ben White's not played above the championship yet. So might have, you know, some steps forward to take. And Rodrigo is obviously playing at an elite level anyway. And you compare him to Watkins and you're getting the finished article versus Watkins, aren't you there? You are, and you're getting the excitement of a, a Spain international, Spain's number nine. And, you know, I, I have to confess, I, I did expect Leeds to go far more domestic than, than they have so far. That was certainly what was being talked about at the start of the window when, when we were chatting to people at the club. And there was that keen interest in Saeed Ben Rama, which, you know, seems to have cooled pretty dramatically. And I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but anybody who's seen the the video that he put on, on Twitter, I, I, it didn't go unnoticed at Leeds. And, and I think it, it did raise questions about what he was going to be like in the dressing room, whether that was the, the route they wanted to go. But the tension of the first kind of three or four weeks of the window where obviously nothing was materialising to the extent of an actual signing crossing the line and you get that automatic tension that develops on social media and, and these days develops more and more quickly. That's kind of been transformed into this natural you know, excitement and exuberance about the fact that Leeds, are, Leeds have gone out and have done a Spain international from Valencia for £27 million and have broken their transfer record as quickly as that. And I've signed a player who I think a lot of clubs would have been happy to take and who other clubs in the Premier League and not just those who've come up with Leeds might have, have struggled to have signed. You know, it was very clear to me that Bielsa was a key factor in the Rodrigo deal. Someone said to me that, you know, 40, 50% of that did come down, you know, the, the finances involved clearly and, and that, that was going to be the make or break aspect of it, whether first of, first of all Leeds could afford to pay. But the Bielsa factor was was crucial as well and, and there is that extra draw at Leeds of, of the fact that, that you are playing for him and if you've ever been interested in playing for him and if he's a, a coach that you want to work, work under this is your opportunity to do that at a club who, who are now in the Premier League so I think it was a big week for the club last week it was a big Saturday it was a big weekend they got in essence the players in the two positions where they most needed to do their business they needed a centre back I mean that was imperative with White going back to Brighton they needed an alternative up front given that um, Augustine won't be signing from Leipzig and, and that, that boat has sailed completely it, it 
had to be done. And, and while I think when you look at Rodrigo's stats, he doesn't look on paper like an out-and-out finisher and a, a 20, 30 goal a season man. I, I still think he probably has that that in him. And I think he, he has that, that side to his game there. And I I reckon, looking at his form, certainly last season and, and over you know the last couple of years, that there are aspects of him that somebody like Bielsa with his coaching ability can bring out of him. And I, I can see him being a very, very good signing at £27 million. Something I've picked up on that you've been chatting about recently, Phil, is that Bielsa seems to have softened towards the idea of, a, of another defender. And we've seen the name Josko Guardiol, who's in Croatia. Pep Guardiola, if you translate it, I believe. I may be wrong. Maybe attractive to Bielsa because he can play centre-back, but also left-back as well. And we know that Bielsa likes his utility players. And it goes back to a, a point I think I made on, on last week's show, which was actually I've realised that the club are basing their targets almost on the individual rather than the positions. Yeah, we'll call him Pep for short. That would be um, that would be nice and easy. Josko Guardiol, who is at Dynamo Zagreb, um, Croatian under twenty one centre back, and you're right, left sided. So when it comes to the cover in the squad, you know you, you have Koch at, uh, as the right sided centre back. You have Liam Cooper at Liam Cooper. You have um, Luke Ayling who can step into that role as well, and and who. Bielsa very much sees as the kind of cover there if if any is needed, but also if you had Calvin Phillips stepping back, you know you've you've got a right footer in, in Phillips and who's probably more comfortable on that side of defence. I think on the left side where Liam Cooper is is, is where the the slightly thinner, and it remains to be seen whether or not Bielsa does feel like bringing in a second centre back. But certainly the noises I've been hearing up until now, it, it, it's been a case of it'll be one and, and that'll be it. It goes back to that thing with Bielsa of not wanting surplus and additional players around the squad when they're unlikely to play but it does sound like he's perhaps warming to the idea of just having a, an extra body in there I mean it has to be said with Guardiola that they're talking about fees in the region of 20 million euros so you know 17-18 million pounds I think he's on a very low wage which would mean in terms of the, the overall financial package um, again I, I think it could fit into to Leeds budget but they will need to give some some serious thought to that about whether they, they want to do it given that he's likely to be a bench player and, and likely to be a little bit surplus. But again, he, he does have the ability to play at, at left back. And, and left back to me still feels like the, I don't know about the problem position, but it still feels like the, the position of, of most uncertainty in the team, the position that is most unpredictable when it comes to, to guessing who will start there on the opening day of the season. You, you've got feeling would probably be Stuart Dallas, given that he looked the most stable and competent of, of any of the three options, Alioski and, and Douglas there. But you know with Bielsa that he does love players who are adaptable and, and versatile. He'll like with Rodrigo the fact that even though Valencia basically used him as a, an out-and-out number nine and, and didn't really move him too much from that role, he can play as a 10, he can play out wide. You know, there are options with him. It doesn't have to be up front. And that tends to be the sort of thing that, that Bielsa looks for when he starts to single out his targets. So I'd watch with interest the centre-back position. I know that they like um, Axel Tunzebi over at Man United as well. Um, Again, somebody who could play on the left-hand side and and has done um, before defensively. So one to watch. um, That and an attacking midfielder stroke winger, they they seem to be the areas that there's there's potential for more movement yet. And with money saved potentially on that Ben White fee, if we've managed to bank, you know, 10 to 15 million, might they decide just to stretch that little bit further and go for someone like Guardiol? Because, I mean, he really is the golden boy of Croatian football by the looks of it. He's, he looks very talented and the reports suggest that he's playing with a maturity beyond his years, but it gives Bielsa that chance to to mould him in his own vision, doesn't it, if he's only young? It does, and, and the fee for Cock is relevant in that respect. You know, with, with add-ons and everything else, had it had it gone the way Leeds wanted with, with White, you would have been talking of you know, a shell out of 25, 30, 
you know, potentially up to £35 million. That clearly leaves a lot in the budget now, given that Cock is signed for, for 13 from from Freiburg. And it, it means that somebody like Gvardiol, who, like you say, is really coveted in Europe. I mean, by no stretch are Leeds the only team who are interested in him. He is. He does look like a, a very, very good prospect and, uh, and you know, really the, the pick of Croatian young talent at the moment. It, it does mean that something like that is, is possible. And equally, people will have seen the links to... Rodrigo de Paul at Udinese, um, their attacking midfielder. Well, that is serious. You know, there, there is serious interest in him. It, it again, just waiting to see what Leeds decide to do with that. Whether they they look to properly push the button and and get it done. I mean, the the kind of guidance I was given after Cock and um, Rodrigo signed last week was that they were likely to just hold fire for a little bit, likely to just sit tight as they they took stock to see what they wanted to do next, to see where they wanted to go with Rodrigo de Paul at Udinese. That is likely to be if if it was to happen a deal that would break the transfer record again or would certainly be on a par financially with the, the Rodrigo transfer from Valencia so it's a big one and, and again I think Leeds have the money to do it I think they feel like the finance is there it's just a case of deciding whether actually yes they want to go down that route and this, yes they, they want to get it done because whether or not you've got the budget and whether or not you feel like you can afford it it is still a, a very very significant and, and big outlay and I think the question will be how badly does Bielsa want this guy? How seriously does he feel that, that somebody like DePaul has to be added to his squad? Because we know with Bielsa that he does tend to err on the side of fewer numbers and fewer bodies um, in his squad. But I mean, DePaul, like Rodrigo from Valencia, would be a, an incredible signing and I think would be a real example of the shift in power at Leeds since the promotion. I don't know about you, but he looks like absolute next level stuff to me, does, uh, does DePaul. You've seen the, the beach photos as well. Exactly that, yeah. I mean, I, I look just like that when I'm undressed under all this padding. I mean, doesn't he just look great? I mean, he looks absolutely great. It is next level in the same way that I think Rodrigo from Valencia is next level as well. It, it, it's next level to, you know, so long as it works. I mean, I think that's the, the key thing here. When you start signing players for £27 million, now on £30 million, those deals have to work, otherwise they become expensive mistakes. And, you know, we did, uh, my sort of analytics colleague, Tom Wovel, we did some close analysis of Rodrigo's form at Valencia, the way he's played, what Valencia do and, and everything else. And it, it seems clear to me that he is going to have to adapt you know, he is going to have to change slightly coming into this Bielsa side as opposed to being in a Valencia team who really didn't try to press at all. It wasn't part of their game. They were quite happy playing, you know, sort of mid-block and, and fairly far back from um, the opposition defensive line. I think coming in under Bielsa, Rodrigo is going to have to press more. He's going to have to work higher up the pitch. He's going to probably have to work harder as players generally do under Bielsa. But I think the flip side of that is because of the way Leeds press and how aggressive they are and, and the, the sort of commitment to attacking when, they're, when they've got the ball, despite the fact that you would expect the, the kind of average share of possession to drop naturally in a more competitive league you would assume that he will see more chances he will be more of a threat he will be more dangerous and I think the potential is there for him to be a, a really really big hit and there's somebody like Rodrigo De Paul again could be an absolute sensation at Ellen Road but it needs to work it does need to work because it, as I say it, you'd be talking about expensive mistakes if these ones don't come off if if they're signed and, and it doesn't really work out but you just feel that Leeds are, are, are in a totally different ballpark now financially we've gone from a, a club where you know for a lot a lot of years you, it was kind of excitement when they, they paid a million pounds to get Luke Murphy um, from Crewe different ball game altogether now and, and we're into the, the realm of proper Premier League high level European signings and, and I can understand the buzz around the place at the moment because that's how it feels 
the phrase on Twitter from from rival fans seems to be leads, uh, doing a Fulham, which I personally, it doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like we're going at this with proper structure, and I feel like with Bielsa, I trust him enough that he's not going to want to just have a you know a dozen players arriving because he can. These seem to be particularly chosen by him, and I'm I'm relatively confident, or am I naive potentially? Well, I, I discussed this with Chappers on, on his podcast on Monday and, and I was saying there's a key difference between Fulham and, and Villa. If if you want to be reductive about this, you can take it to the level of money spent and the, the amount that's been invested. And, you know, if, if Leeds do go the whole hog with these deals that are being talked about, you, you are pushing on towards 75 to £100 million spent in the, the first transfer window back. But Villa and Fulham, the, the recruitment was very widespread. So you weren't only talking a lot of money, you were talking a lot of numbers and what it did particularly at Fulham was it changed the fabric of the team and it changed it to such an extent that it felt like a completely different team. And, and even though they'd been very strong and fluid and competent and dangerous under um, Ikanovic in the championship, it, it kind of tore a lot of that up. What you see with Leeds, and, and it's not to say that it'll work, but I think the, the difference as I see it is that they wanted a centre-forward, so they've gone for Rodrigo. They wanted a centre-back, they couldn't get White, so they've gone for, for Robin Koch, who has a lot of the, you know similar attributes to White and looks like he'll, he'll fit in nicely. They're clear that they, they would like a kind of wide player, number 10, so they've had a little nibble at Ryan Kent. They're, they're being linked you know very credibly with, um, with DePaul, the Udinese. It isn't a case of 11 or 12 faces coming in. It feels like targeted signings in, in areas where they feel like they, they need to strengthen. And it's not, it doesn't feel to me at the moment like spending money um, for the sake of it. And, you know, we, we'll see 12 months down the line. We'll see where they are at the end of this season and, and how it goes. But I, I feel as if these signings have had a lot of work behind them, have, have been given a lot of thought and, and a lot of attention. And I don't personally see the comparison between Fulham and, and Villa. I think what happened at those clubs is very different. If you do want to read Phil's piece with Tom Warville, the analysis piece on Rodrigo, have a look on The Athletic. You can try it out for free at the minute. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to claim your 30-day free trial. That whole doing a Fulham, doing a Villa thing, it's just, it's laziness, isn't it? That- the best clubs, to my mind, and the clubs who operate most effectively are those who can who can shut out to the, the best of their ability, the white noise, and can focus on following their own strategy without being affected by criticism of it or by being affected by people questioning whether it's it's wise or sensible or, or predicting that, that it might go wrong. I think Leeds would have gone their own way this summer regardless, and, and it helps having somebody like Bielsa there because he's very strict and stringent when it comes to the players he, he wants to sign. He's He's not strict in terms of the, the the money that he wants Leeds to spend. You know, he's. I don't think he's demanding in that sense, and I don't think he has set figures in his mind about what our budget needs to be or what we need to be paying. I think he just looks at players who fit and who work for him, and and he asks the club to to go after them. And the one thing you have at Leeds now is a very deep and and well structured scouting network. When when I was writing about the Rodrigo deal and and asking about it, what impressed me. With the sheer number of people who were involved. So, you know, you had the fee agreed over lunch on Tuesday between Radrazani and um, Arnold Murphy, the, the chairman at Valencia. But you had Victor Alter kind of quarterbacking the whole thing right from the start, dealing with Rodrigo and his father, who, who also acts as his agent. And you had George Mendes involved at, at the Valencia end as well. But Leeds have a head of, recruit, a head of European recruitment, Gabby Ruiz, who did a lot of groundwork. They used an intern. Um, who was based in Spain, he's at university over there again to, to set up the presentations to make sure everything was in place for the points where they needed to speak to Rodrigo. I needed to persuade him, you know, needed to, to persuade him that this was the move. And then, of course, he had Bielsa as well, who, who spoke to Rodrigo personally and, and helped to tip the balance and, and to get this one done. And it is a very professional setup. And I think, 
I would be surprised these days if you ever saw Leeds lurching from one kind of strategy to another. And, and even though it feels like there's been you know, a bit of a change this summer. I think what they were very good at was keeping the interest in Rodrigo at Valencia quiet and kind of doing that one in the background as they were looking at, at other players. But, you know, had it not been Rodrigo, I think they would have gone seriously at Watkins at Brentford. So really, the strategy was there and, and they, they have stuck to it. And I, and I know that at the moment, they're, they're pretty happy with how it's going. Hey, wouldn't it be great if every clothes store that you shopped in had only your size, the styles that you like, and everything at a price that you want? Well, Stitch Fix is a company focused on doing just that. It's an online personal styling company that makes it simple getting the clothes you love. It's a completely different way to shop, takes out all the hassle, and it's all about you. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash Phil Hay to set up your profile, and they will then deliver great looks personalized just for you. You'll pay a £10 styling fee for each fix, which is then credited towards anything you keep. Schedule at any time, and there's no subscription. Delivery and returns completely free and easy, so you can always send back items that are not right for you. Get started with Stitch Fix today by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash philhay right now, and make sure you use that URL to support this podcast. stitchfix.co.uk forward slash philhay. Well, we've been talking about transfers there. Let's timestamp this one as Wednesday night that we're recording because things can and do move quickly at this time of year, particularly when the window is open. But more than that, we are interfering with democracy right now. So Phil, you run a poll for our part three bit every single week on Twitter. Lots of anger, contention, debates around this week's one uh, in which record signings won the vote. But a lot of people want to hear about Marius Jalukas. So we've decided to break with tradition and actually do both of them. So we'll have a, a race through our record signings now. And I mean, we don't need to see her and wax lyrical for too long about Rio Ferdinand because we all know how that one ended up. So let's position this one as your top three, if we can then. Your top three record-breaking transfers. Now let's bear in mind, we have signed players for more cash than some of the players listed on here, but we're looking at the ones in this particular order. So are we all happy to go ahead on that basis? Absolutely. Do you know what jumped out to me first looking through this and going back through the record signings was the fact that in 81, when Leeds signed Peter Barnes, they, they paid just over £900,000 for him, which a substantial fee back then, really, really was. And by the time you got to July of, of 99, uh, when they signed Michael Bridges and, and brought him in, they were breaking a transfer record that was still only at four and a half million for Thomas Brolin at Leeds. And I found it incredible, really, that in those 20 years, the transfer fee, the, the kind of transfer record at Leeds moves so little when you consider that within about a year of, of Bridges coming from um, from Sunderland, they, they were paying £80 million pounds to take um, Rio Ferdinand from from West Ham. And, and then obviously, you know, a couple of years later, so Ferdinand to Manchester United for, for 30 million quid. I think it gives you the gives you some idea of how transfer fees shoot up and down. You know, there, there are points at which everything goes bonkers. There are points at which the market seems to, to plateau. Um, and I, I found that quite, quite revealing. I think I would go as far as to say that one of the players who looks like the best value, w- without any doubt, is Tony Dorigo at £1.3 million. Pounds. He, he was a, came in from Chelsea with somebody who, who Howard Wilkinson targeted deliberately at that point where Leeds were about to go for the for the title. And I think you in particular, Dan, would have been around in that, that period and, and in that era. And and at £1.3 million for, for what he helped to deliver and for what came in, you know, the following signing, uh, following summer, that, that struck me as a very, very good signing, that one. Without doubt, I think 
probably my favourite player on this list, Tony DiRigo. So you've uh, you've done well to zero in on that one. Yeah, it was brilliant, was DiRigo. I've not seen a better left back. And I think to a certain extent, fans who were old enough to have seen him play for Leeds, the left backs that we watch sort of suffer by comparison even still to this day, because I always remember just how good he was on that left wing, sliding tackles so fast, a wand of a left foot, could cross it. And he was so effective in that Howard Wilkinson side, which was all about width and overlaps and crosses for Chapman to stick his head onto. But mind you, he only held that, held that record for a month, didn't he? Because Rod Wallace was signed not long after. I mean, by the time I started watching Leeds, Dorigo was, he was still the left back, but he was starting to pick up a number of injuries and stuff. And, and then we signed David Robertson and I just wish we were playing an injured Dorigo instead because he was absolutely awful to watch. Admittedly, as part of an absolutely awful George Graham team. Bless him. I mean, I remember David Robertson up at Rangers and he was a, was a fine player for them. Very consistent, very good, looked extremely promising, but it sounded like one of those moves that was just a kind of disaster at, at Leeds from the off. The other, I mean, I think this should probably be top of the list really, but Bobby Collins at 25 grand from Everton um, back in, in 1962. I think anybody who looks closely at Leeds history knows how important Collins was but he does tend to get slightly forgotten because he was at the very start of the, the Reeve era and because he wasn't in the mix at the point where you had Bremner and Giles and, and Lorimer and, and everybody else in the pomp and, and you know looking like the best team in, in Europe but you know I always say this if, if you go back and speak to your Eddie Grays and others who were around the club at the time they'll always say that, the, that even including Bremner and, and guys like that there was no bigger influence on that era than Collins he was such a talented player and I think managed to to translate his own proper winning mentality and his own attitude into the younger players who were there round about him. I think, I mean, Eddie always speaks about his amazing banana kicks, free kicks that that Collins was capable of, brilliant striker of the ball. I think he just kind of set the tone, you know, helped to set the tone for what was going to come. He he helped to educate a lot of the players who were very young and very raw, but went on to be some of the best in, in the business. And I'm sure 25 grand back in 1962 was is a lot of money, but for what he did and, and for the difference he made, it, it kind of looks like a snip. To draw a modern comparison with Bobby Collins, I've heard a lot of people who've seen both suggest that Gordon Strachan had a very similar effect in terms of when Wilkinson came in, resetting the culture and leading very much from the front and impressing on the other players that came in and the younger players exactly what the culture of this football club should be like. The right signing at, at the right time. And, you know, Strachan doesn't go down as a, a transfer record, but he goes down as an unbelievable bit of business. You know, great value for the money he cost for Manchester United. And I think Collins was like that. I think he had that older head on him, so he was able to kind of mould that dressing room and he was he was able to lead it for Revy in the period when he did. And obviously suffered a, a pretty horrific injury and, you know, I don't think was was ever the same after that. But it's always stuck with me the way in which the, the ex-pros from that era talk about his influence and, and how, how important he was to the whole project and, and how they say quite openly, you know, it, it's you talk about that era and everything does focus on Giles and it does focus on Bremner and Lorimer and Gray and, and everything else. But actually, if you take a step back and, and you look at who was probably most crucial and, and most key in the Riviera, it might well have been Bobby Collins. Tell you what's interesting about this list. I'm just looking at the dates for it, and we'll we'll run through a few of them now, so so the listener understands exactly who we've got on here. You've kind of got you've got early Reevee, uh, Bobby Collins, and then John Charles in March and August '62. But then you jump ahead, and the only kind of mid Reevee players that came in are Mick Jones and Alan Clark in that order. And then you jump ahead after that to 
you're looking at the post-Revy um, era, Duncan McKenzie, and then you're talking in 1978, Paul Hart. And you can see the club at the back end of the 70s through uh, Alan Curtis and then Peter Barnes, then trying to deal with that that post-Revy kind of slump almost, where they were trying to uh, renew the squad for a squad that had been together for so long. But after that, like, as you said, Peter Barnes is 1981. Then you go ahead to Wilkinson era and John Lukic in 1990, then Dorigo, Wallace, Rowe Castle in 1992. And then you see a whole series of players in the in the post-title winning era from Rowe Castle to Brian Dean, Tony Yeboa, and then Thomas Brolin before you hit the, the O'Leary players in, in Michael Bridges and Olivier Decor, Ferdinand, which has obviously stood as a record until we signed Rodrigo just last week. So you can almost see the different eras playing out. I think you can see as well the, the huge gap of wilderness that we've had in between as well. I think the, the longest we've gone without breaking the record before was was about nine years, whereas this time it's been well almost twenty. So it, it just I think it just shows the depth of depression we've suffered under under Bates and GFH and early well late Ridsdale. It took um took the Ridsdale factor really to, to get things going properly. certainly from in, in a modern sense. I mean I still remember when the Premier League started and and finance started to change in that division. I remember the you know the deals for Collymore at Liverpool, Les Ferdinand to Newcastle, that sudden rush to splodge money on Andy Cole, you know, over to Old Trafford for, for seven million. And it wasn't that Leeds weren't spending in that period. It's just that the fees were, were remaining at a kind of respectable and, and sensible level. I mean, I guess Tony Yabo at three point four million worth every penny just for those goals and for the memories and you know we we had, did a, a section on Yebo in a very recent podcast and you know I, I think if for that cash and, and the way he's become this kind of icon at Leeds it, it was it was money very well spent the, the other one that that stuck out as being a player who it seemed to me a, a good example of getting somebody at the right pr- right price and not you know ridiculously inflated at a time when the market was going a bit mad was Olivier Decor um, from Lawn for seven point two million, which is a chunky outlay, and, and no pretending that that isn't a lot of money. But I think again, if if you if you went back over his career at Leeds and, and what he did and, and his performances, you would say that that was a that was a clever deal that one, and, and that was done at a good price. And it's nice that you're picking all my favourite players as well, here, Phil, because Tony Dorigo is top. I think uh, second, you've probably got Yuboa. And then third, I would say for me, is Olivier Decor on these. I absolutely love Decor. A, a vastly underrated midfielder, I think, in, in world terms, because he was absolutely brilliant for Leeds. And could have been for a lot more years as well, had he not had the Venables fallout and all that sort of stuff. I think that was the... It's weird, he, he sort of left under a bit of a cloud, but it was a, a cloud only produced by Venables. It didn't seem like there was any real upset from the fans about it. People wanted him to stay. It's, what, it's the way I remember it anyway. Yeah, very, very much so. I, I think in different circumstances, Decor could have had a four, five, six year career at Leeds and, and could have been exceptional right the way through it. But him going was symptomatic of things starting to go wrong. It, it was bottom line was a fallout with Venables and a complete personality clash that was never going to resolve itself and, and never did resolve itself. But he he falls into that group of players who wasn't around for long enough, falls into that group of players who you wish had been able to stick around for, for longer than he did. But as I say, when I look at that fee, I just think that that, that looks, in, in an era where Leeds got very excitable and started to overspend and started to pay whatever they were being asked, that actually looks like a fee that was properly negotiated and a fee that was negotiated with some common sense and some you know, some some hardball ball tactics. I just think that for the core is, is very good money. I mean, Ferdinand made a lot of sense at the time. He was absolutely fantastic. And I, you can draw parallels with, us, with our moves for Ben White at the minute when you're looking at 
talented young English defenders and we ended up getting quite a good profit on him in the end uh, time when we uh, when we needed the money it's easy to look at some of the mistakes as well I mean I, I think Peter Barnes always underwhelmed uh, from what I've heard through through speaking to my dad and I felt sorry for David Rocastle as well who came in with a high profile and it looked like Gordon Strachan was sort of finished in, in the summer of 1992 because it was his back was it his back problems that he always used to have and then he managed to play on for a number of years and suddenly we had David Rocastle there and Howard Wilkinson having signed him as a replacement for Strachan didn't quite know what to do with him. Peter Barnes as well, that is a lot of money um, in 1981. And, you know, I was all of about nine months old at that point. But I can imagine that the attention on him would have been pretty severe. You know, the talk about that transfer fee. I mean, every, transfers always get dominated by the amount of money that's paid. And, and I think, you know, it has been a problem for different players at different clubs uh, right since football began with the the fact that when you come in and you're expensive certain things are expected of you and you kind of deny the the leeway that other players get to settle in or to to have little poor periods or to to underwhelm because it, when you cost a huge amount of cash you, you're simply not allowed to do that and you know Michael said there you know the, the length of time between the record set in in 81 with Peter Barnes and then 1990 when a million pounds was paid for for John Lukic that's a hell of a long time to be record signing in the same way that the Rio Ferdinand has been for for 20 years up until Rodrigo coming in and I, I would guess that on, on Barnes' shoulders there was a, a heck of a lot of pressure at a club who were in decline and were going into a, a pretty tough decade and, and were not probably in a position to, to really thrive with him in the team So your top three then Phil just to, to narrow them down for us who have we got? Third place Rodrigo second place Decor um, and top of the list Bobby Collins at 25 grand Nice and we couldn't finish this section without maybe just a short word on Thomas Brolin I'll leave that to you, I think. You must have seen him in the flesh, so so to speak. A hell of a lot of flesh by the time he left. I always quite liked Brolin. I don't know if it was just that thing that I guess school kids now are going to probably be having with Rodrigo where they're desperate for him to do well. But I always felt like under different circumstances he probably could have done well, but it was never going to work for him. And I think his his attitude to to not being played and to maybe some of his fitness work was just never going to work properly with Wilkinson. And he's, he's one player that Wilkinson actually does say that he kind of knew it was the wrong deal at the time, but he, he was pressured into buying someone. I've seen the highlights of him playing for Crystal Palace against Leeds. And I think if every game summed up how it went for him in England, that was pretty much it. Returning to the present day then and stuff that's been happening this week, we played a friendly. We got absolutely trounced at Stoke and it worried a few people. Are we worried? It was only 80 minutes. Doesn't count. Would have won if we'd have played the next 10. That's right. Late, late fight back. Um, people were worried about the transfer window three weeks ago, weren't they? And suddenly Rodrigo's through the door, Cocky's through the door. The context I would suggest that people give themselves with this is the fact that there are so many players away at the moment. You know, the, the Nations League and the, the international schedule has pretty much stripped um, half the squad out um, from under Bielsa. And that's not to say that there weren't proven and senior players in the team at Stoke because there were. You know, you had Hernandez there, you had plenty of others too. But if you start to go across the list of players who are absent and aren't involved, you know, it's pretty extensive and it includes Rodrigo and it obviously includes Robin Koch. And, you know, I, I think it's probably best for everybody to assume that even those two are going to take some time to acclimatise and, and to settle in. I will be absolutely fascinated to see what their role is at Anfield because 
at best they'll have had probably a week training with Bielsa, which is not a lot of time. And and he doesn't tend to be well. He is not the sort of coach who who drops people in cold. So not a great result, but it it is a summer friendly. And I just think that as with most seasons. You'll need to wait until the Premier League games get going before you can properly draw a conclusion about where Leeds are and, and how they're going to cope. And more to the point, draw a conclusion on what Bielsa's best eleven is is going to be because he hasn't got it to hand at the moment. And it's all about fitness and shape, isn't it, at this stage? I don't think he's remotely bothered about the result. It is, and they were supposed to start last weekend with a game against Fleetwood um, over on the, the West Coast, and I was told that there were plans for a game against Lincoln as well on the same day. There was going to be a, a split of squads, but those were cancelled because essentially so many players were going that Bielsa didn't feel that, that it was the right thing to do, and obviously Phillips been called up by England, which was a massive feather in Leeds' cap and, and his as well, but it did mean that once again a key player who you would 100% expect to start at Anfield isn't here and is abroad and you know, it is, isn't in in situ to play in these friendly games. So yeah, it's it will be about fitness. Although I expect the players to be very very fit anyway. You know, the the end of the season was only the twenty second of July, and they they all looked in you know fantastic shape. It has to be said in in that running, there was no real slump and there was no real rustiness, with the exception of the game down at Cardiff, the first game back. So yeah, I think. I can well imagine that Bielsa will be ruining these or will be resenting this these international games and, and wishing that he had everybody with him because it is annoying and the timing isn't great. But unfortunately, it's just symptomatic of, of what's going on with scheduling generally with COVID. And we're going to be looking at another 12 months before the season properly starts falling into into place in, in the timeline that we're all used to over you know a period of 12 months. Have you noticed that everybody's calmed down about Bielsa's contract now since we uh, got a shiny new bauble in the form of Rodrigo? They have as soon as Rodri- as soon as they lit the fuse with Rodrigo, the questions about Bielsa dried up. Although you know, important to say that he still hasn't signed Bielsa. It still isn't done, and it's the same message that it's agreed and it's all in place and everything else. But it requires translation and it's getting everything down in in black and white. And I know I keep saying the same thing week after week after week. And I know that at the start of every week, Leeds expect that it'll be concluded and it'll be announced and and everything else. All I can keep saying is that I don't sense any significant problem from this. I mean, there was obviously and and inevitably the chatter that he might not, and not from me, but I, I, I mean just out in the ether that he might not be signing because he wasn't happy with transfers, but then you get Rodrigo done, you get cocked on, and they spend £40 million and we're still waiting um, for him to sign. And, you know, as far as I was told and as far as I was concerned, that's never been the issue and that's never been the problem. And, you know, it should happen. It should happen. And I think it, it, with any other coach, it would almost certainly have been done by now but this is him are you worried Michael no he's still here isn't he he's obviously he's obviously been involved in all the transfers he's talking to players as if he's going to be here and he, he doesn't strike me as a man who would um, who would lie to people I think the thing about Bielsa as well is contractually he does commit to a club and, and he is very committed to Leeds but when he gets to the point when he feels like he needs to go a contract isn't going to stop him from going you know you saw that at Marseille you saw it at, at Lazio and that's just how how he is you know it's a gut feeling for whether he's happy whether he feels on the one hand that he's doing a good job or on the other that he's being properly supported I I don't think the aspect of support will be in question at all after the business they've done in the past week it just these things with him are always hugely complicated there's the there's the issue of him being a Spanish speaker Leeds being English speakers you know and then at boardroom level anyway with people like Kinnear and so on and and everything needs to go back and forward and, and to be sorted out I am surprised it's taken this long even you know 
even with Bielsa, I didn't think it, it would take this long to get done. But at no stage have I sensed anybody panicking about it or, or anybody going off the, the impression that there's some kind of issue that, that can't be resolved. I mean, the point there is that they have genuinely bent over backwards to accommodate him in every regard at this club, haven't they? In many ways, it's his ideal club because he's not come up against the same friction that he met at, say, you know, Lille or at Lazio, for example. They have done everything just about that he's asked of them that we know about. Yeah, it's been real quid pro quo, I think, because they ha- they have invested in the training ground like he wanted. They've done as much of the transfer business as they could um, in line with what he was asking for. I think at the same time, he's done the club a, a massive favour, to, to say the least. I mean, he, he's he's delivered what they've been looking for. And, and that, you know, that is when all said and done the only thing that, that matters with Bielsa he, he has delivered but also he's done it with players who were existing players when he took over players who a lot of people me included doubted you know could be a, a tight, in a title winning team or, or had the makings of a of a title winning team so you know he has done exceptionally good things for the club but at the same time I do feel like they have supported him and I do feel like they've they've given him total authority which to be quite honest needed to be done you know and they needed a head coach here who, who did have that level of of control, but when you know a newly promoted club are spending forty million pounds over a weekend on a Spain international and, and a Germany international, you have to say that they're they're doing their bit as well. How ready are we for this new season? Have we seen any progress like the the physical works at Ellen Road? Do we know anything about that in terms of like you know these new floodlights we need, media compound, the new media section, the gantry? I mean, what's it looking like? The dugouts have they been have they been dug out yet? It's, it's all going on. I, I haven't been down um, recently enough to see what's going on with the floodlights, but I know that the media area, for example, has been cleared out and is being being redone. Um, I said a while back on on this podcast that the dugouts will have to be replaced. It, it, it's kind of funny the strict rules that exist in in the Premier League. I mean, Leeds have had those actual dugouts, you know, like bona fide dugouts for years. I mean, for longer than anyone can can remember, and it's never been a problem. I don't think coaching staff that, that I can remember have ever complained about them. But in the Premier League, you, you need the, the kind of racing car seats that people will recognise and, and, you know, that kind of uniform design. And likewise with the media area, you need all the, the mod cons um, and all the bells and whistles that, that journalists expect in that league. So it's all happening. And I mean, it, it's been a, a push to get it done because they clearly had a tighter turnaround this summer than they would have done in a normal summer. But yeah, they're, they're hard at work and, and spending money on it as well. Some of it is not cheap. Just to tidy up some of the other stuff that's been happening, it's Stuart McKinstry signed a new deal. You're doing a piece on the lads? Yes, um, piece uh, tomorrow as we speak, actually, um, Thursday to, to anybody who's listening um, with hindsight. Uh, on him, he, He's always somebody, there are quite a few kids now at, at Thorpe Arch, I say kids, but you know, teenagers and up-and-coming under-23s or, or under-18s who get mentioned in dispatches. You've got Charlie Creswell, very, very good centre-back and one of the sons of, of Richard Creswell. Knowing Kenna as well, really talented England youth international who looks like a, a real prospect. But McKinstry over the past two or one is somebody who I've heard mentioned in dispatches, you know, regularly and, and very positively. So I've I've done a profile on him and a look at his game, but also more of a look at his background and and who he is. He's a he's a real homebud actually. He grew up in on the west coast of Scotland in Motherwell. He was a big Motherwell fan. He was a club mascot. He was a season ticket holder. He was a youth team player there. He he made the first team squad and almost made his debut when he was was sixteen. Um, and still spends a lot of time going home because when he made the move to Leeds last summer. His, his father John decided that he was going to move move down with him to Weatherby um, just to help him to settle in and to help him 
you know, acclimatised to being away from home. I think they're a very close family, and it was a it was a challenge for McKinstry to to take that move. But he he sounds like an interesting kid, and and as I say, he has shown a, a lot of talent. And I think in the list of players who you'd, you'd hope would would be emerging, you know, over the next year or a couple of years, he'd certainly be in the mix. What sort of a player is he then? Can you just um, shed a bit of light on that for anybody who's not familiar? Yeah, he's he's a winger, so he's he's got very good feet, good at playing in, in tight areas. Um, he's he's a right footer, but Motherwell played him on the left for a while, you know, giving him that option of cutting inside. Anybody who watched the FA Youth Cup game against Manchester United at Old Trafford back in February would have seen him playing on the right and showing some really good trickery. You know, like I say, good with both feet, um, good delivery from the right hand side, quick enough. Looks like he's got some decent upper body strength and you know looks looks to me like a, a real prospect and I think because you know Bielsa takes the, the under 23 so seriously and gives so much thought to who they are and, and what they do and, and how good they can can be anybody who's getting a bit of a positive crit from up there at the moment must be doing something right Wouldn't it be lovely if somebody would deliver some beer right to your front door well, thanks to Beer52.com, you can have that happen. Eight craft beers expertly sourced from around the world and sent to you. You don't even have to leave the house. Cover the postage of four ninety five at Beer52.com forward slash athletic and you're all set. And as a special deal, because you're a listener to this show, you'll get two extra free beers. So 10 beers in total. Beer52 don't just send you anything. They travel the globe to find you the very best beers from great craft breweries. And they are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. With Beer 52, you can leave anytime, so it's completely in your hands. Your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment as well, explains all about the drinks that you're drinking, and you get a beery snack thrown into it too. Go to beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case, and right now you can claim those two extra free beers. Right, we dealt with the record signings above, so let's do Jalukas. So just for the record, Viduka's goals came third in this poll. It's not just uh, Mario Jalukas, it's Hillsborough, Sheffield Wednesday, 6-0 and whilst this might sound like it's punishment should we try and do it sort of in a slapstick fashion because it was just one of those days when absolutely everything went insane well I'll make Moscow wait I think it was his, his calling really this and, and it was the day when his talent for gifts really shone through and the amount of material he had to work with including that classic um, moment of Rudy Austin and Jason Pierce running into each other on, other on the halfway line which actually spawned some very very funny spin-offs on, on various Sheffield Wednesday forums. It was absolutely dreadful. I mean, this was January 2014. I don't imagine anybody really needs reminding. And the only saving grace, I think, from this was that it didn't end up in a record defeat for Leeds. They lost 6-0 and, and their record defeat is still 8-1 against Stoke City back in 1934. It, it was the worst defeat for more than 50 years. But, you know, I, I'm watching some of the highlights before revisit, you know, revisiting it in this podcast and it's lucky that it didn't run to nine or ten because right from the off, Leeds were absolutely woeful. And it was a kind of strange week because for anybody that's forgotten, they, at the point at that time they were they were under the control of GFH, but they were in the midst of this proposed sport capital takeover, which involved David Haig, you know, the managing director at Leeds had come in with GFH, but was visualising this buyout himself. Um, and you had Andrew Flowers involved, who was the head of enterprise insurance, the, the shirt sponsor that Leeds had at the time. And this is starting to, to brew in mid to late November and it dragged and it dragged and it dragged through Christmas and it dragged through the early part of January. And in that month, we were waiting for signings. Um, Brian McDermott was manager. He was wanting players. He was wanting to, to shuffle the side a bit because they'd gone into Christmas in fifth place in the championship. They looked like they were in the mix for uh, for the playoffs. 
And in this week, he, he got Cameron Stewart on loan from Hull City um, and he got Jimmy Kebby uh, on loan from Reading. Two signings that on paper looked like they could potentially be decent and would add a bit of pace and width to the team. And for some reason that nobody was ever quite able to put their finger on, rather than going four four two at Hillsborough, which is what we expected that McDermott would do, or, or certainly to use two players up front, he went with a, a kind of unusual four three three. Um, in which he played Stuart and he played Kebby, um, but it wasn't the system that you're expecting and it wasn't the, the formation that he seemed likely to go with. And from the off, it's hard to think of a game where you were more certain that Leeds were going to lose and really from about 20 minutes in onwards, certain that they were going to lose very heavily and, and very horribly. Everything was wrong about this day, wasn't it? Everything. Even the kit, it was the horrible Karma Gold kit which, in my subjective opinion, is the worst kit I think we've ever had, that one. And Jason Pearce had his fresh out of the club shop as well. You could see it, it was, the TV cameras managed to catch him with the label still hanging out the back of it. It just all had a, a horrible sort of tin pot feeling to it, did the, the kit and, and the performance. But I recall a fair bit of sort of um, optimism around this, though, with, with Kebbe and Stewart. As Phil said, they seemed like reasonable signings. And and obviously the, uh, the main man at the back, Saliukas, we'd... He'd played a few games before this and he'd looked pretty good all in all. We, we couldn't really believe we'd managed to get him for free. I mean, how did you feel about that, Phil? Because he came from Hearts, your club. Uh, were you delighted or annoyed? Or? Well, see, Sally Lucas is very well thought of at Hearts. He was the club captain in that famous Scottish Cup final win when um, Hibbs took a paste in at Hamden. And, you know, those are the, the images that, that are remembered of him up there. I mean, funnily enough, I'd, um, I'd clocked him uh, in reception just before he signed when I wandered in. And, and he was pretty unknown to everybody because he wasn't a familiar face. But straight away, I, I knew who he was. And part of me sort of thought, well, he was always very decent at Hearts. So, you know, maybe he's he's worth a little go here on a short-term contract. Maybe he could be okay. And, and as I recall, he started fairly well at Leeds. You know, there, there was no great issue there. There was no great problem. It didn't feel like he was horribly out of his depth. His, his fitness seemed to be okay. And while we can't pin that defeat to him entirely at Hillsborough, I mean, he had he had a Rehubka-esque performance, really. I mean, it, it was that bad, and it was all, it almost got to the point towards the end where everything he did with the ball was wrong. People remember that back heel into Leeds' own box. I think Leeds were 4-0 down at the time, which was just suicidal and, and completely insane. But even, you know, either side of that, it was missteps, it was poor touches, it was errors leading to goals, it was all going wrong for him. And then you had Matt Smith who came off the bench at half time. And I think that substitution in itself told you that, you know, the Leeds were 2-0 down, but it told you that McDermott didn't feel like they were getting anything out of the game as it stood. And then you had um, Matt Smith catching a Wednesday player in the face, you know, less than 60 seconds into the second half, getting a straight red card, which really did sum up the, the entire afternoon. And you're talking about optimism there, but the, the signing of Cameron Stewart and, and Jimmy Kebby, there was the feeling of the club being lifted through that week by the fact that some deals have been done and, and two players who seem to be at the very least competent at championship level being signed. Kebby, you know, up and down at Reading, but when he'd been good, he'd been very good and, and they, they thought quite highly of him down there and, and Stewart, you know, was, was fairly proven in the championship. But I did a column at the back end of that week really saying that, you know, it's, it's needed these transfers to kind of pick everybody up and actually... The club seemed to be feeling a lot better on the basis that, that these players are in the door. And I got a great, great missive the following week. This envelope dropped to my desk um, sent directly to me. And all it was was a little, the headline from my column 
uh, which said something along the lines of transfers have lifted the mood Ellen Road and whoever sent it to me and it was anonymous but it's really funny I'd just written in capital letters bollocks across the whole thing <laughs> and I thought that is yeah that is pretty much the weekend and weekend in a nutshell you know you went from that feeling that McDermott might have had two players who were going to help him to that sense of this does suddenly feel like it's all all falling apart and don't forget either that 6-0 against Wednesday came hot on the heels of 2-0 defeat away at Rochdale in the FA Cup which was a miserable afternoon in its own right Did you ever get an inside track on whether there were any truth in the rumours that he turned up drunk? Or have people just managed to deduce that from the way he was playing? No, it, it was never confirmed and it did feel a little bit like it became established fact without anybody ever saying that that, that was the case. I know we used to have um, a jury in the Yorkshire Evening Post at the time who'd give the verdict on the Monday after the game and I distinctly remember somebody writing in one of their pieces Zaliuk has played as if he was pissed which to be honest was not unfair criticism I mean that is how it kind of felt either pissed or, or half asleep but no I, I cannot say that that is true I, and you know nobody ever said that to us nobody ever ever said that that, that was the case it, it just kind of felt that way looking at the way he was playing Was this the day when GFH tried to sack McDermott at half time? Yes, or at least discussed it and thought that it, it might be an idea. I mean, I you could say that Rochdale was the, the kind of start of the, the slippery slope and actually from a, a good position before Christmas, Leeds had got themselves into a bad run. They'd, they'd lost um, at Forest just before New Year's Day. They'd lost to Blackburn on New Year's Day. They'd been beating at, at Rochdale in the FA Cup and then they had this at, at Hillsborough. Um, at halftime, that was the that was the discussion. We, we need to sack him. I don't know whether they actually thought they could sack him at halftime, although given some of what GFH went on to do and, and did previously, you, you wouldn't have, have put it past them. But I think more importantly, or, or what made a difference was that that was the result that led to McDermott being sent an, an email from Hisham Al Reyes, the, the GFH executive, telling him that he had to submit his team um, before each game and um, for approval by the board. He had to outline his tactics and explain everything else and it was a, a major loss of um, authority on, on McDermott's part you know I, I do think that that was the, the beginning of, of the end for him there were points in the season that you know as it went on beyond there where I felt very sorry for McDermott and particularly after you know the events of Mad Friday and the stages where it really felt as if the, the team had abandoned him but I don't think he can divorce himself from, from blame for that result at Hillsborough it was absolutely horrific I mean he said I remember himself saying afterwards it's a, as far as I'm concerned that's a public humiliation you know that is an absolute embarrassment and there's just no way of, of explaining it in, in any other way and and what I noticed about Zaliukas that I'd totally forgotten was that he dropped out of the team for a little while after that he spent about two months out of the side but when he did come back in for his next appearance it was at home to Reading on March the 11th and he was substituted after an hour with uh, with Reading 4-0 up and Leeds 4-0 down and that was pretty much the end of him. Credit to McDermott because he did say in that post-match interview that he didn't distance himself from the players. He took responsibility for it. But when I was looking through for the, the quotes after this one, I then discovered the fact that Stuart Gray was caretaker manager of Sheffield Wednesday on this day. They didn't even have a full-time boss at this point. No, not at all. They, they were not in particularly good nick and I think it was seen beforehand as a 50-50 game and a game that, that Leeds should be 
be trying to win. But, you know, there's a point in the commentary towards the end. I think when um, Wednesday scored a fifth goal, when the commentator says, well, if ever a caretaker was going to get a permanent job on the back of a result, this is probably it. You know, it was a case of the looks like Wednesday and Leeds have, have both pushed the button to, to get Gray the job full time. They were not an outstanding side Wednesday. They had decent players. They had kind of some strengths, but plenty of weaknesses as well. And and as I say, the the only kind of relief I felt at the end of it was that they did get out with it at six nil rather than ten nil because it did feel like it could be ten nil. From your perspective as a journalist, how do you go about reporting on something like that? Well, my old colleague at the Evening Post, Richard Byram, did a, a run of the ratings for that game, and I'm notoriously stingy anyway. But it was. One zero, one zero, two. I think McCormack might have got a four for a bit of kind of willing running up front, but it was just it was just carnage and 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 it was brutal. And afterwards, you you were kind of trying to press McDermott and and you know to, to put it on his toes a bit because I, I mean that is that's not a result as a manager that you can blame on other people. The players had to carry the can to a large degree, but you know it 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 was his fault to some extent as well. That the formation didn't seem right. It didn't seem logical given that he'd had these two wingers come in and, and the scope to play two up front was there for him, you know, and to be kind of attacking in, in that sense. But every time you sort of said to him, you know, that's a that's an abject embarrassment, he'd say to you, yeah, it is, you know, it absolutely is. Players will be in for training tomorrow. You know, I'm ashamed of this. I have to take responsibility. And it was kind of disarming in the sense that you, you didn't feel like you could be any more critical of him than he was of himself. But the other thing that was happening in the background at that point was that Massimo Cellino was, was coming onto the scene as a um, you know potential buyer of the club. And, and Leeds actually played a hell of a lot better a week later. They, they lost at home to, to Leicester, who were, were well on the way to winning the league and, and going up. But it was a late goal from David Nugent that won it. You know, Leeds were right in that game and, and had chances themselves. But that was the first time that Cellino was pictured at Ellen Road. He was spotted in the stands and, and he was right on the scene um, looking to to do a deal. And, and I think already by that point, he'd given up on McDermott and decided that, that he most certainly wasn't going to be manager going forward or, or in the longer term. Presumably the request for team information and tactics was so that GFH could feed it into football manager to see if he was doing the right things because that wasn't uh, a tactic they were averse to. No, and, and that was the story around the time, which I sounded apocryphal, but I'm told is absolutely right, that they didn't sign Ashley Barnes, who went to Burnley, because as far as they were concerned, his stats on Football Manager or whichever version they were looking at um, were poorer than Luke Varney's, and on that basis, there was no point in, in doing the deal. Um, it was a very it was a very odd time, and actually a, a really sad and, and hard time for coaches and players and, and everybody else it, it really was not a happy club and, and as I say I think what you forget very easily is that on Christmas Day they were fifth you know on Christmas Day they weren't ever going to finish top two that was never that was never a possibility with that squad but you know I, I remember McDermott saying to people I think we'll be okay for the playoffs I think we've got a really really strong shout of this and then by the end of January they were 12th uh, and, and gone and just never looked back What was the phrase he used Phil playoffs nailed on I don't think even he was that rash. Well, this time next week, we will be on the eve of the season, the cusp of it all beginning, Phil. What, in your opinion, needs to happen between now and next week? And what do you think is likely to happen? Well, this is the good thing, isn't it? That you can laugh about a game like 6-0 away at Wednesday because in a week's time, it's going to be Anfield and, and it's going to be... Liverpool. I think the players will have a hard week. I think Bielsa will push them, he'll drill them, he, he will make sure that they're as, as close to 100% ready as, as he 
can possibly have them. I mean, he, he has got decisions to make. And I think the thing that he's going to have to decide on, and he's usually very good at drawing these conclusions quickly and, and knowing his own mind and on what he, he wants to do and, and has to do. But he needs to make a decision on where does Rodrigo feature in his starting lineup if if he does. Um, I, I suspect we'll see Bamford rather than Rodrigo at Anfield. And likewise, Koch, you know, it, it seems like a, a no-brainer really to pair him up with Liam Cooper given that he is a Germany international given that he, he is clearly a high calibre centre back but you know the, the Bielsa way is often to go with the players who are you know ready and prepped and you know in, in the Luke Ayling mould where he's been training all summer and, and he can, can step across so that I think uh, will be the, the crucial part of the agenda for Bielsa in terms of transfers I mean as I say I, I, I did kind of expect and I did say on Twitter that I thought Leeds would keep the powder dry for a little while after doing Koch which is not to say that they're not working in the background on other transfers or, or other deals but it, it didn't seem as if they were going to dive in immediately to, to follow up in you know the next 24 hours or whatever else with two, three more signings. Um, but they'll have an eye on, on the market. And I think, as we found with Rodrigo and, and Robin Koch as well, when those deals are there to be done, you've got to press the button and you've got to do them. So watch this space. But I think it's a, the, the focus in the main will be on Liverpool and Anfield, which it has to be. Phil, Michael, thank you. You can try out The Athletic for free right now and get the deep dive and the analysis on Rodrigo. And hopefully over the next seven days or so, We'll have news of another sign-in to bring you on their 30-day free trial, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show.